Pushkin. Hi, everyone. Malcolm here. We'll be bringing you the winning vote-getter of our Revisionist Revisited competition next week. It was a nail-biter. But right now, I have to tell you about a stunning new show from Pushkin Industries, because you're going to love it. It's called The Last Archive, conceived of, written, and hosted by one of the smartest historians on this planet, Jill Lepore. She's a professor at Harvard and a staff writer at The New Yorker, and her podcast pursues a mystery across time, Who Killed Truth?, Each episode tells a story from a different decade in American history. Jill was also inspired by old-fashioned radio dramas, so her team tracked down a sound effects library from the 1930s, one that had been sitting around an archive on discs made from shellac resin. Shellac! And we digitized them so the producers could sprinkle these sounds of the past throughout the series. The result is like nothing you've ever heard before. The show is out now. Here's the second episode. It's called The Detection of deception. Give it a listen and then subscribe to The Last Archive. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, its walls lined with shelves, stocked with proof and cluttered with clues. Here, over on top of this filing cabinet, a wooden box with a brass nameplate. W-M-M. Damn, it's locked. This place, this vault, stores the facts that matter and matters of fact. All that stands between reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. It lies in a time between now and then The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Wind your watch back a century, step across the threshold, and into a lecture hall. The class met twice a week at American University, two blocks from the White House, in the spring of 1922, in the evening. All the students were lawyers. They were young men. The professor, only 28, was hardly older than his students, William Moulton Marston. But Professor Marston had a BA and a JD and a PhD. He was an intellectual rogue, handsome, dangerously charming, almost as charming as he was ambitious. He was trying to establish a new discipline, the science of testimony, the science of how you know whether someone is telling the truth. He liked to teach by way of experiment. And on this particular evening, he was conducting an experiment on what eyewitnesses can actually notice and remember. It seems to be a regrettable fact that little systematic psychological experimentation is being carried on in the field of testimony. Much valuable material is being produced by psychiatrists, sociologists, and criminologists from time to time, but the subjects of such studies uh, either psychopathic or criminal variants from the, um, <clears throat> criminal variants. Fr- Enter. Yes. In the middle of Marston's lecture, a young man entered the hall. He wore leather gloves. In his right hand, he carried an envelope. Tucked under his left arm were three books: one red, one green, one blue. I've read Marston's lecture. And I've read his report on this experiment. 
What happened next? I like to imagine. Sorry to interrupt, sir, but... Yeah, 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 yes, yes. The messenger handed the professor the envelope. Professor Marston opened the envelope, pulled out a yellow paper, and read its contents. While Professor Marston was reading the message, the messenger slid a second envelope into Professor Marston's pocket. And then the messenger, using only his right hand, pulled out of his own pocket a long, green-handled knife. The messenger opened the knife and began scraping his gloved left thumb with the edge of the blade, sharpening it on the leather. Yeah, that'll do. On your way. Yes, sir. Students, that man was an actor. <gasps> what? <laughs> this has been a charade, an experiment. Take out a fresh sheet of notepaper this very instant and write down every fact about what just occurred, every last detail, no matter how seemingly insignificant. You have one minute. <gasps> My dear listeners, these people are actors. And this, too, has been a charade, an experiment. Please, now, this very instant, tell me what you just heard. Is that all you can remember? All the details? Let me see if you left anything out. What university are we at? In what year? What time of day is it? What part of the country was the messenger from? What color was his knife? Time! Put down your pencils, pass your paper to the front of the room. Oh, here we are, in our green, yes, California. Good Lord, All right. Marston had identified exactly 147 facts that the students could have observed about the messenger. The number and the color of the books, the fact that he held them under one arm, his left, the color of the paper in the first envelope, yellow. And then Professor Marston collected his students' responses and tallied the results. Out of 147 observable facts, the class on average noticed only 36. And since two of these facts were errors, I am only counting 34. What? 34 out of 147 facts for a testimonial accuracy rate of precisely 23%. And not a single one of you noticed the knife. This is the last archive. The show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems sometimes lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, we're trying to solve a crime. Who killed truth? This episode, we're looking at a trial set in motion by the experiment Professor Marston conducted that night in 1922. An experiment that involved a machine. All right, Mike. A machine you've probably heard about. Did you ever hear of a lie detector? The lie detector. You probably know it from the movies. You may lie to us, but you can't lie to that. The machine itself, the polygraph machine, was invented by someone else. But the test, the blood pressure test... That had been invented by William Moulton Marston, that professor who liked to experiment on his students. Okay. 
Most of us aren't very good at telling whether or not other people are lying. Marston thought a machine could tell better. See these needles? You see the even little line this needle's making? When you tell a lie, your pulse quickens, and this needle shows it on the chart. We take this sort of thing, this sort of movie scene, for granted. There's scenes like this all over the place, every police procedural, every episode of Law & Order. But when you're conducting a historical investigation, you're supposed to pause and think about the things you take for granted. Think about them until you don't take them for granted anymore, until they get weird. The way, if you think about a word like pumpernickel, after a while, it starts to sound really strange. Pumpernickel, pumpernickel, polygraph, polygraph. And once things get strange, you can ask questions about them because you can see them more clearly. So you can ask, why trust a blood pressure test more than your own judgment? It used to be that only God could decide the truth of testimony. For centuries, murder trials involved the courts trying to get God to speak through the dead body. If it bled when you touched it, you were guilty. Even after trial by jury replaced this sort of thing, trial by ordeal, this idea that the dead speak lingered. In its way, the lie detector is a kind of ordeal, except it doesn't look for guilt in the blood of the corpse. It looks for guilt in the blood of the accused. Marston described his method in his undergraduate thesis. The special problem suggested to me in the Harvard Psychological Laboratory was an investigation in the changes in blood pressure resulting from an effort to hide the truth. Marston kept refining his truthoscope all through graduate school and law school and during the First World War, when he did experiments on soldiers and prisoners of war. He was seeking fame and fortune for sure, but he also had a noble motive. When police couldn't get criminals to confess, they pretty often beat them up. They gave them what was called the third degree. Marston had the idea that if police had a lie detector, they'd stop beating people up. In 1922, at the same time as he was teaching at American University in Washington, Marston decided that the time had come for a real-world test. He wanted to prove that his method worked. To do that, he wanted to get the results of a lie detector admitted as evidence in a criminal trial. He needed a client desperate enough to hand his fate over to an untried experiment. Inspector Clifford L. Grant, record of an interrogation, August 22nd, 1921, 1.30 p.m. What is your name? James Alfonso Fry. James Alfonso Fry would soon become the subject of another one of Professor Marston's experiments. Fry was young and unmarried. He was lean and handsome, with short hair and big ears. He'd fought in the war, he worked in a dentist's office, and he was broke. As he later wrote, I was a young man of 21 years and penniless. The courts had to assign me a lawyer. Police had charged James Alfonso Fry with the murder of Dr. Robert Wade Brown, the president of the National Life Insurance Company and the richest black man in Washington. Here's what we know about the night Dr. Brown died. It was a Saturday in November 1920. Brown was hosting a party at his house, celebrating his alma mater's football victory when... Someone knocked at his front door. Brown went to answer and was shot dead on his very doorstep. The murderer, some people said, a 
escaped down an alley. Brown's grieving family and his company together offered a $1,000 reward, but the investigation had come up short. Although a lot of Brown's guests witnessed the murder, or at least glimpsed the murderer, it had all happened so suddenly that they could remember hardly any details. Months later, the police were still searching for Dr. Brown's killer when they arrested a young black man on an unrelated robbery charge. It was Fry. He and a cousin had robbed a guy of a wallet, a ring, and a watch. A petty theft. During his trial for robbery, one witness, a man who worked at the same dentist's office as Fry, told the police that Fry had confessed to him that he, Fry, had killed Dr. Robert Brown. And it turned out that Fry had in fact been at Dr. Brown's house on the night of the murder, and that he had brought a gun. And when the police questioned Fry, he confessed to the murder. The police had to get that confession on record. So they brought him into an interrogation room where they questioned him all over again. They wouldn't have made an audio recording, this is 1921, a little too early for that. But they made a transcript. And here in the last archive, we've got a copy. You have told my colleague that you killed Dr. Brown. Are you willing to tell me about it? Yes, sir. When I first went to Dr. Brown's, I had a dollar, and I asked him to give me a prescription because I had been told I had gonorrhea real bad. He then said he couldn't do anything for me for a dollar, and he said, Don't you son of a bitches come around here with only one dollar? Fry said then he'd left and gone to try to raise money for the medicine by pawning his pistol. A forty-five automatic. No luck. So, he said, he went back to Brown's with his loaded gun tucked into the belt of his pants. But when he got there, he said, Brown sent him away again, told him if he didn't have the money to get lost. And he struck me over the left eye. Did he have any weapon in his hand? No, sir. Then I took the butt of the gun and hit him. And that didn't do any good because he struck me again. And I tried to run to the door and he grabbed me again. And I told him to put his hands up, and he kept on hitting me, hitting me on the head. And in the struggle, I think my gun was fired. There, just there, with that slight, cautious admission. I think my gun was fired. James Fry confessed to killing Brown. But Fry, who didn't even have a dollar to pay for a prescription, couldn't afford a lawyer. Here's where Dr. Marston comes in. In that course on the law of evidence, two of his young students told him about the case, and then they volunteered to take Fry's case for free, defending him against the charge of murder. First, they went to visit Fry in prison. The students, Professor Marston and his contraption, a blood pressure cuff, or a sphygmomanometer. Marston hooked Fry up. Someone took a photograph. You can see things in a photograph that you can't see in a transcript. In the photograph, Fry, a black man, is surrounded by white men. Professor Marston and his law students, all in dark suits, as they strap Fry into Marston's machine. Marston grasps Fry's arm, taking readings from his body. Fry later described the experience. Several months after I had been confined in the D.C. jail, my attorneys came to see me accompanying a Professor Marston. This learned doctor was later known to me as the inventor of the lie detector. He asked if I would submit to the use of this instrument. To such requests, I readily agreed. He asked me several questions, none pertaining to the case. Then suddenly he launched upon several questions going into every detail of the case. At the Metropolitan Courthouse one month later, 
this graph was supposed to be the ace in the hole for Fry's defense. And perhaps it would catapult Professor Marston to fame as the greatest legal mind of his generation. But the judge assigned to the case, Chief Justice Walter McCoy, was famously stern, and he was miffed. This was a big murder trial, and a lot of D.C.'s black community had come out for it, and Marston had alerted the press about it, so there were a lot of reporters there, too. Judge McCoy was no fool. He saw early in the trial the long game this Professor Marston was playing. Marston wanted to replace trial by jury with trial by lie detector. All rise! The prosecution called a detective who had taken Fry's confession. I called the stand detective Clifford Grant. I interrogated James Fry on August 22, 1921. Detective Grant testified that Fry had confessed to him. But then Fry's lawyer, Mattingly, started bringing in his witnesses. I called to the stand James Fry. Could I have a glass of water? Not a word of my confession was true. Fry recanted. He insisted that he hadn't killed Brown. It was going to be hard to convince a jury of this. But Marston offered to prove, with his lie detector, where the real truth lay. It was a slim hope, Fry knew. Fry later wrote that there had been no real chance for a black man in Washington in 1922 to get a fair trial. If I am neatly dressed and can explain myself... I'm considered being a smart aleck and must be guilty. If I am dressed in overalls, unable to explain the situation, then I'm considered a brute and still must be guilty. In any ordinary trial, a train of witnesses would make their statements. The guests at Brown's house, the police who investigated the crime, the people who could give evidence in support of Fry's alibi. And then the jury, 12 white men, would decide who to believe. Those men would find the facts of the case and issue a verdict. But which words of Fry's were true? The confession he'd given to the police or the recanting he did right there on the stand? Fry's lawyer gamely tried to follow the Marston defense plan. If your honor, please, at this time, I had intended to offer in evidence the testimony of Dr. William M. Marston as an expert in deception. His testimony on what? Um, testimony as to the truth or falsity of certain statements of the defendant. If your honor, please. If you object to it, I will sustain the objection. No other judge had admitted the lie detector test as evidence. And Judge McCoy didn't want to be the first one to do it. He all but begged the prosecution to object to this evidence. And when they didn't, he began objecting himself. The witness was here on the stand, and it is for the jury to determine whether or not he was telling the truth. Uh, That is very true, uh, Your Your Honor. But as expert testimony, is not this proper as competent evidence to go before the jury to ascertain what Dr. Marston's opinion is at this time. Oh, well, we get to be more or less experts ourselves. And so do the jury upon the question of whether anybody is telling the truth or not. That is what the jury is for. That is what the jury is for. It had taken centuries for ordinary people, even if only still men, white men, 
to gain the right to serve as jurors of the guilt or innocence of their peers. But in the early decades of the 20th century, a lot of scientists, calling themselves experts, thought they knew quite a bit more than jurors, that they had tools, methods, even machines that could find out the truth. Judge McCoy was smart enough to see the size of William Marston's ambition, and he was determined to foil it. When the next witness came to the stand, Mattingly again approached the bench. He had another proposition. I love this part, the jousting, the little duel, but Mattingly was wildly outmatched. If your honor, please, before this witness begins to testify, may I inquire whether your honor would permit a systolic blood pressure test to be taken during an examination of the witness on the stand? If we are going to have a systolic test, we will have to test every witness who testifies in the case. If there is any science about it, we might as well apply the science to every witness. Mind you, I do not know anything about the test at all. I had certain pamphlets submitted to me yesterday to look at of some Dr. Marston. I believe his thesis when he got his PhD degree. I'm going to read them when I come back from my vacation. I see enough in them to know that so far, the science has not sufficiently developed detection of deception by blood pressure to make it a usable instrument in a court of law. When it is developed to the perfection of the telephone and the telegraph and wireless and a few other things, we will consider it. I shall be dead by that time, probably, and it will bother some other judge, not me. Judge McCoy was a piece of work. After that, Mattingly bumbled along for a little while before concluding, and then the prosecution delivered its closing words. James Fry is the most colossal liar that ever appeared in court. I rest my case. The jury deliberated for less than an hour and found James Fry guilty of second-degree murder. Judge McCoy sentenced him to life in prison and Fry went by train to Leavenworth. He was supposed to spend the rest of his days in jail. Professor Marston was conducting an experiment. But it's not an accident that his test subject was a penniless black man accused of murder. Marston became a psychologist at a time when social scientists of every stripe were expected to try and solve what was called the Negro problem. What that problem was shifted all the time, but never the commitment to the notion that facts alone couldn't solve the Negro problem. Only numbers could. Social scientists counted everything they measured the circumference of the skull, the length of a life, the density of a neighborhood, the pressure of blood. Nearly a century after the Fry trial, historians still spend a lot of time looking back at this moment, the period from about 1890 to 1930. Some of the best work in this field is done by a colleague of mine, Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. The first time I met him was at an academic conference with a one-word title, Numbers. We're both really interested in numbers and why people count things, what kind of knowledge numbers add up to, and what they subtract 
one of the most amazing things about the late 19th century, looking at that kind of local and national data, is that it looked today like an Excel spreadsheet printed out and folded many, many times over. A lot of Khalil Muhammad's work focuses on how, after the Civil War, after emancipation, sociologists and government agencies collected statistics on black crime to argue that black people were, by their very nature, criminal, that they were genetically not fit for their freedom, and so had to be watched and studied endlessly. You could almost think of it like a, a person who is in rehab, and you develop certain protocols uh, to keep track of their progress. Uh, how many meals, how many hours do they sleep, what are the signs of a healthy lifestyle? Whereas you wouldn't do this for a normal person. You wouldn't keep a ledger of such things. Mm-hmm. And so it was that, to use this metaphor, it was that ledger keeping of African Americans that was a reflection of those same progressives thinking Black people are not still fully ready uh, for full participation, and so we'll keep an eye on this crime thing. Well, the truth is we live in the wake of all these ideas. They're baked in <laughs> to our consciousness mm-hmm. already. So we know what to make of it. We can either make of it that uh, black people have a crime problem um, or that black people are subject to systematic racism in the system, or we might say some mixture of both. Mm -hmm. These ideas we live in that are already in our consciousness, a lot of them go back to a man named Frederick Hoffman. In 1896, he published a book called Race, Traits, and Tendencies of the American Negro. Hoffman wanted to argue that blacks were inferior, Up until then, those arguments had been based on racial pseudoscience, measuring skull sizes or some other physical differences. Hoffman was pretty innovative in shifting that gaze uh, to crime statistics. And from that point forward, the framework that he used, uh, that the disproportionate evidence of Black people being in prison was, was on its own with no further analysis, no footnotes, no asterisks, Mm -hmm. the best proof that Black people were inferior uh, to people of European descent. Uh, police discrimination and brutality didn't matter. rates of conviction. <laughs> None of that stuff like, oh, mattered. There are a few other factors. And the culture just soaks that up like a sponge. Yeah, and it still does. Professor William Moulton Marston, he wanted to turn James Fry into a set of numbers, the numbers on the graph paper from his lie detector test. Marston wanted to turn Fry into a number, not to prove that he was a criminal, but to prove that he wasn't. And maybe I should admit here, I don't know whether James Fry was guilty or not. He was at the scene of the crime, he had a motive, he had a weapon, and he confessed. So it looks pretty bad. But then again, Marston had a lot on the line, and he was pretty sure that Fry was innocent. I might not be sure whether Fry was guilty or not, but I'm pretty sure Marston never expected to get Fry acquitted. Instead, he was hoping to take Fry's case all the way to the Supreme Court to demonstrate the merit of his invention. Marston dreamed of convincing the nation's highest court that his machine could tell, better than any jury, who was telling the truth. Men come to judge this question by certain arbitrary standards in the course of their dealings with others. After Fry went to prison, Marston helped his student lawyers file an appeal. Or to be honest, I'm pretty sure Marston just wrote the brief himself. It asked, how does the court tell whether or not someone is lying? The decision may hinge upon the look in the eyes, the expression on the face, the nervous condition of the witness, the rosy flush which suffuses his countenance, 
or upon any one of many other evidences which may or may not be taken to indicate truth or deception. We say that there is no standard and no logical or reasonable basis for the determination of this question in general in the absence of positive evidence of deception, and that if science has developed a method of accurately determining whether a man is in a mental condition or state of truth or of deception, the court and jury should be given the benefit of this assistance. But the state, in its own brief, said that the idea of trial by lie detector was ridiculous. Whatever may be said against a system of trial by jury, under the Constitution and laws, a jury of 12 impartial men are peculiarly fitted to sift conflicting and contradictory testimony and arrive at a just verdict. As for Marston, whether he can or cannot detect deception is something that does not appear to be known to anyone except Dr. Marston. At the end of 1923, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued its decision in Fry versus the United States. The court ruled against Fry, and also against Marston and his lie detector. And the decision established a new rule of evidence, something that came to be called the Fry Test. It became the most cited precedent in the history of law and science. The Fry test is a test of evidence, a rule that a judge applies in deciding whether or not to admit the testimony of a supposed expert. It's only 81 words long, but I'm going to make you listen to all of them. Listen for what the rule says, but listen to for what it doesn't say. Just when a scientific principle or discovery crosses the line between the experimental and demonstrable stages is difficult to define. Somewhere in this twilight zone, the evidential force of the principle must be recognized. And while the courts will go a long way in admitting expert testimony deduced from a well-recognized scientific principle or discovery, the thing from which the deduction is made must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. All of the facts of Fry's case were stripped out of the ruling. That's how the law works. All that survives when courts apply the Fry test are those 81 words. Everything else is erased, including one very important circumstance, something pretty widely known at the time, but that since then has been almost entirely forgotten. That fact is this. Between Fry's trial and his appeal, federal marshals went to the office of Professor William Moulton Marston at American University, and there they arrested him for fraud. It turns out that the inventor of the lie detector test? He was a notorious liar. So did he ever give you guys a lie detector test? Oh, like yes. This? We were experimental animals, of course. <laughs> so tell me about that. What was that like? Well, it was a sham, really. I mean, <laughs> none of us had believed in it at all. Uh-huh. And as far as settling disputes around the house, it was laughable. That's Burn Holloway Marston, the son of William Moulton Marston, he of lie detector fame. Burn is 88, a retired obstetrician. He's a sweetheart. I first met him a few years back when I got fascinated by the crazy, truly crazy story of his father. Burn was born in 1931, nine years after the Fry trial. Little Burn was beloved. And like everything else in his father's life, he was an experiment a test case, among other things, for his father's lie detector test. So it's like, who stole 
you know, yeah. Don's sweater. Was it you, Peter? You burn. Let's give you a lie detector test. Nah, it wasn't on a regular basis, okay. but it did happen. The fact that Marston was a father of four and used to use his lie detector test on his kids is a good story. But there are other reasons to spend a little bit of time with Marston's private life. First, because it's completely zany. And second, because Marston's public persona turns out to have been one big lie. Marston, lie meter inventor, arrested. Charged by Boston authorities with using the mails to defraud, William Marston, a professor at the American University, was arrested yesterday. At a preliminary hearing, he was held in a $3,000 bond. Marston, several months ago, constructed a machine which he declared could detect lies. The charges against Marston actually had nothing to do with the lie detector. They had to do with a super sketchy business scheme of his. The charges were also eventually dropped. But all this was going on at the same time Marston was working on Fry's appeal. Marston lost that appeal. Fry lost that appeal. And Marston got fired from American University. But that wasn't the end of William Moulton Marston. He got another job, teaching at Tufts, where he began an affair with one of his undergraduates, a young feminist named Olive Byrne. She came from a radical family. Her mother and her aunt, Margaret Sanger, had together opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, what became Planned Parenthood. My friend Byrne Marston, Olive Byrne was his mother. My mother was a saucy... Blue-collar Irish, <laughs> witty, uh, attractive, uh, black Irish, black hair and pale skin, freckles. And those blue eyes. And a blue eyes. And so that was the beginning of the, uh, of the menage a trois. Uh, yes, the menage a trois. Professor Marston had radical ideas about sex and about gender roles, too. He had four children by two women his wife, Elizabeth Holloway, and Byrne's mother, Olive Byrne. Byrne's own name is a mashup, Byrne Holloway Marston. He's got the names of each of his three parents. The grown-ups lived as a threesome, which, as you might guess, was something of a family secret, because at the time you could be blacklisted from academia, from any job, for homosexuality, not to mention polyamory. The Marston clan eventually moved to Rye, New York, to a big house, a place they called Cherry Orchard. Bern always says it was an incredibly fun way to grow up, with so much love and this kooky father. He did not conform. You, you could hear him coughing at night because he smoked all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he cerebrated better in the reclining pose <laughs> <laughs> with a whiskey in hand. <laughs> and he was a big guy. Yeah, he was yeah. big. Yeah, he was, I think he was probably about six feet tall, but his weight varied. And at one instant time, he got to 300. Mm -hmm. And then he said, that's great. I'm going to join the Fat Man's Club in New York, which was actually <laughs> it was a, a, real thing. a real thing. <laughs> I'm eligible. <laughs> I'm eligible. But he, that was his life. He was uh, always uh, creating, I guess, because as you know, the variety of things that he did were incredible. He did all these self-help stuff for yeah, Reader's Digest. Yeah, like he threw himself into things when he, you yeah. know, when he did them. Marston was furiously curious, always conducting experiments, 
always looking for the next big thing. But whenever anyone found out about his polyamorous family arrangements, they fired him. He lost his job at Tufts, and then he lost a job at Columbia. So then he went where all disgraced academics hoped to go. He went to Hollywood. It was in all the gossip columns. New York Evening Post. Dr. Marston, who won't write B.A., Ph.D., and L.L.B. after his name in another week because Hollywood is touchy about such things, is going to be the psychological authority behind all forthcoming motion pictures from one big concern. In Los Angeles, Marston went to work for Universal Studios as a consulting psychologist, mainly on horror films. What he'd do is he'd hook up whole audiences to his lie detector while they watched The Rushes. Then he'd advise the studio about whether the films were too racy or too scary or not scary enough or not racy enough. He did other nutty experiments, too. Dr. Marston and Emotions. It's 18th of July, 1930, and Dr. William Marston demonstrates complicated device whereby he claims he can determine and compute comparative emotions of blondes, brunettes, and redheads, says Marston. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your hats. Here comes the real voice of William Marston. This is the sphygmomanometer, an instrument which measures the subject's blood pressure in the arm. This is the chymograph drum, which records the breathing. The breathing is taken with the pneumograph around the subject's chest. We are now going to test the girl's reactions to gambling. The announcer watches a needle etch marks into a rotating drum thingamajig, a chymograph. Here's Kynograph with indicator showing one girl's reaction to game of chance. Needle is moved by subject's breathing. Here we see how Redhead reacts to gambling. And as she wins, Marston's emotion finder indicates that Redheads show most emotion when gambling. When I visited Byrne at his house, we watched the newsreel together. It had come out the year he was born. Oh, man. That's it's just so... I don't know, it's like a quack show from, <laughs> from the 20s. It is. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's immensely well, he, charming. But, like, did he, he believe that? Or is that just showmanship? I think it was showbiz. Yeah. Because he had him walk on the parapets of, in New York City, uh, you know, 20 stories up and see which one would react the most. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a... Yeah. It's a little, it's not very scientific, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah. I have a theory. I think people who study lying tend to be liars. Compulsive liars. Marston definitely was. What are the facts about razor blade quality? That's what Gillette wanted to know. And that's why Gillette retained Dr. William Moulton Marston, eminent psychologist and originator of the famous lie detector, to conduct scientific tests that reveal the whole truth. Truck drivers, bank presidents, men in every walk of life, these men shave while every reaction is measured and recorded. Not knowing which blade is which, each subject shaves one half his face with a Gillette blade, the other with the blade of a competitive brand, while the lie detector accurately charts the reactions. In more than nine out of every 10 cases, the shavers choose Gillette. Says Dr. Marston. The results of my study make it possible for me to state flatly and back my statements with positive proof 
that Gillette blades are far superior in every respect to competitive blades tested. Gillette blades, precision made. The FBI apparently had by now had enough of Dr. William Moulton Marston and decided to investigate this Gillette scheme. FBI agents brought Marston to a police station in Detroit and told him to replicate his experiments while police officers looked on. He couldn't. Only five and ten men tested in the station preferred Gillette. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wrote a note to himself in his Marston file. I always thought this fellow Marston was a phony, and this proves it. But if Marston was a compulsive liar, so was Olive Byrne. She wrote articles for a women's magazine for years, and in those articles, she'd quote the famed psychologist William Marston as if he were a stranger, when, of course, they lived together. She once wrote an article about the Fry case, and in 1936, when Fry applied for a pardon, he included her article with his application. I find this a little heartbreaking. Fry was 34 then. He'd been in prison since he was 22. I don't know if he killed Dr. Robert Brown. I think there's a real chance that he did. But I do know for certain that he didn't get a fair trial. He filed petition after petition, insisting on his innocence. Had I been fortunate to have had lawyers, judges, or intelligent people on the jury, I would never have been convicted. I'm anxious to have the case reopened, if possible, in order that my name could be cleared. The courts denied his petition. Two years later, in 1938, Marston published a book called The Lie Detector Test and gave a copy to Byrne, inscribing it for Byrne Marston to help him always tell the truth with love from Daddy. The next year, Fry was paroled. He'd served more than 18 years in prison. On his release, still determined to prove his innocence, he renewed his petition for a pardon. Since my freedom from prison, I have married and have a fine wife. He petitioned again and again, even applying for a presidential pardon. I gotta wonder, would a guilty man have kept on pressing the case years after his release? Most people are under an impression that because a person has been indicted, tried, and sentenced, they are guilty. They do not stop to realize the fact that and all three conditions named above are human decisions and that no human decision is infallible. I am innocent of the charge against me. I have every reason to believe that the courts of the District of Columbia thought so. After all, this is Washington, and the question of race plays an important part, even in the courts. James Fry died in 1956. His name was never cleared. Instead, it lived on as the name of a test of evidence. Fry's name also became a verb. To be fried is to have your expert witness's testimony deemed inadmissible. Marston's name isn't a verb. You don't get Marston if you take a lie detector test. Instead, Marston is hardly remembered for the lie detector test. He's remembered for a different invention of his. Hold on to your headphones. It's about to get weird. In 1941, Marston, his wife Elizabeth Holloway, and his other wife, Olive Byrne, created the comic book superhero Wonder Woman, the best-known feminist icon of all time. She fights for women's rights. She's, in fact, based on Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood. I came across the evidence of this entire crazy story years ago in an archive, 
and I had to write a book about it. It's called The Secret History of Wonder Woman. It's a story about feminism, but it's also a story about evidence and truth. Wonder Woman fights for justice. On her forearms, she wears two metal bracelets that can stop bullets. They look just like the ones Olive Byrne used to wear. And of course, she has her own lie detector. Marston once wrote a Wonder Woman story about the Fry trial. I am pretty sure none of Wonder Woman's readers recognize the illusion. But in this particular story, Marston imagines a courtroom scene in which Wonder Woman tries to get a judge to accept as evidence the results of an interrogation she's conducted using her golden lasso of truth. I understand you uh, examined this defendant with your remarkable Amazonian lasso. Yes! Hmm, well, it's highly irregular. I'd like to hear your uh, findings. I will show you, Judge! I object! Objection sustained. Okay, so then Wonder Woman lassos the defendant, Priscilla Rich, and drags her to the witness stand and gets her to confess that, yes, yes, she really is the supervillain known as the Cheetah. After which the odd, grateful, and besotted judge shakes Wonder Woman's hand. Your advice was invaluable, Wonder Woman. I wish you'd give me further help. Call on me anytime. Marston rewrote the story of the Fry trial the way he'd wanted it to come out, with himself as the hero and Judge McCoy worshipping him. But in 1944, just when Marston finally realized this triumph with Wonder Woman, he got really sick. He had what apparently was polio. Uh, and this is, coincided with the success of, the, of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. He was finally making it, it something that's going to yeah. pay him enough money to support yeah. all these people. And watch something be successful. And watch it yeah. be successful, and it was. I mean, that's a kind yeah. of a tragic yeah. life. And, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, Right, because Wonder Woman has endured. Outside of the last archive, very little lasts. James Fry is all but forgotten, except for his last name, a test of truth. But injustice? Injustice endures. And if you want to fight it, you don't need a lasso of truth or a lie detector. But you do need knowledge and evidence. Even the kind of evidence we'll try to find in the next episode of The Last Archive. The Evidence of the Invisible. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef-Haffrey. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Hinson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theater, Emily Shulman at Harvard Law School, Alex Allenson at the Bridge Sound and Stage, and at Pushkin to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rustic, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. Particular thanks to the National Archives and the Sophia Smith Collection at Smith College. I'm Jill Lepore.